for some reason they told him if he would go to the Allen, they would cure his asthma. The CIA was funding the Allen Memorial. Then he started getting experimented on. No consent for any of the treatments that he was put through. Uh, so they were trying to brainwash people for if they were captured as prisoners, that they wouldn't speak, so their brain would be wiped out. And this is what they were trying to do to experiment on, on my dad and, and uh, hundreds of others. That's another one of the treatments they did. They did put them in insulin comas, and he was in a coma asleep for 36 days with a recording beside him. The recording said, your mother hates you, your mother hates you, your mother hates you for 36 days ago. So the big thing is the statute of limitation in that, but torture is the word. When they reuse torture, that statute of limitation is lifted. And this was definitely torture. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb, I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Lana's father went to the hospital for asthma, but he was referred to another hospital, renowned Canadian psychiatric hospital the Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal, where they proceeded to secretly conduct experiments on him and hundreds of others over many years. I had a vague recollection of hearing about the secret CIA brainwashing experiments of the 50s and 60s, but recently I was made aware of a class action lawsuit started by the surviving victims and their families. It turns out that in 1977, it emerged that the CIA had been funding experiments in mind-controlled brainwashing as part of a project known as MKUltra. At the time, the CIA was scrambling to deepen its understanding of brainwashing after a handful of Americans, captured during the Korean War, had publicly praised communism and denounced the US. This so-called research was undertaken at more than 80 institutions, including colleges and universities, prisons, and hospitals. One of the doctors the CIA connected with was Montreal psychiatrist, Dr. Ewan Cameron. 
He was trying to discover whether doctors could erase a person's mind and instill new patterns of behavior. Some of the things he did to his patients, like Lana's father, are so horrible and unbelievable that it sounds like the stuff of B-movie nightmares. Patients were subjected to high-voltage electroshock therapy several times a day, forced into drug-induced sleep that could last months, and injected with megadoses of LSD. Other experiments included sensory deprivation, extreme isolation, verbal and sexual abuse, and other forms of torture. After reducing them to a childlike state, at times stripping them of basic skills such as how to dress themselves or tie their shoes, Dr. Cameron would attempt to reprogram them by bombarding them with recorded messages for up to 16 hours at a time. First came negative messages about their inadequacies, followed by positive ones, in some case repeated up to half a million times. Dr. Cameron couldn't get his patients to listen to them enough so he put speakers inside football helmets and then locked them onto their heads. Reportedly, patients were going crazy banging their heads into walls trying to escape the constant message. So what does Dr. Cameron do with these non-compliant medical experiments? He puts them into a drug-induced coma so he could play the tapes as long as he wished. Lana tells how the man her father was, successful and upwardly mobile in his career, was destroyed by these secret experiments. The effects reverberate throughout his family to this day. Lana's father could no longer work, and they lived in poverty as her mother struggled to put food on the table, and then she was also required to pay for her husband's shock therapy. As Lana said, her mother was paying for her father's torture. If you need the support of an experienced counselor around medical error or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. And now here's my interview with Lana and a word of warning that some folks may be triggered by Lana's experiences. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Okay, we, I grew up in a, in a small town, it wasn't a city, a small town called Chambly, south side of Montreal. And my childhood was, I didn't know any different because I didn't know anything different, but uh, I've learned a lot since then. Um, my father was the crazy guy that ran, rode his bike around Chambly, it was Chambly. And uh, I was embarrassed by him being my dad. Uh, there was, it was really hard to, I couldn't explain it to my friends or anything because I didn't understand it myself. So yeah, that must have been quite hard to process of feeling ashamed and embarrassed, confused. Yeah, very much so. So the small town you, the, you grew up in, was it uh, mostly French, English, bilingual? Bilingual, pretty much bilingual. But they had our, you know, we had our English part of it. So we, we were, you know, in the English part of it. So that was sort of your childhood. It sounded like it was a bit chaotic. 
Yeah, I spent very a lot of time with my godmother, my sis, my mother's sister. Uh, took me pretty much every summer, um, and 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 I was at her. You know, they, she helped raise me actually, because uh, my mother was always up at the hospital, up at the Allen Memorial, and trying to do her thing. And I was young, and so thank God for my auntie Isabel, who was the one that. Uh, really took care of me when my mother couldn't plus my mother was working because she had to, to to try and make some money to put my food on the table so my father couldn't work anymore because he was he was not able to right so let's uh, unpack that a bit so when you mentioned the allen memorial that's a hospital in montreal yes it's uh, connected to the royal victoria hospital it's up on mount royal at what point did you find out that your father was one of the victims of the what's known as the MK Ultra experiment? Uh, the brainwashing experiments. Um, it came to my attention in uh, my late teens. Uh, around my late teens, I, I sort of heard, you know, I, there was always a little bit of uh, talk about it, but it was very hush hush. Nobody talked in the family about it. I remember my mother on the phone with my grandmother and asking her if she could borrow some money. And I just didn't understand why at that point, but I understood after. Like my dad, should I start off where my dad went in in 1953 and why he went in in 1953? Yeah, let's take yeah. it from there. He was uh, attending the um, um, Royal Victoria Asthma Clinic because he had asthma. And for some reason, they told him if he would go to the Allen, they would cure his asthma. That's what I've always learned all of my, you know, my life. And so my father went to the Allen, Allen, in the, um, Allen uh, Institute. The rest is history. Then he started getting experimented on. No consent, nothing, nothing, nothing. He never gave a consent for any of the treatments that he was put through. So for people like me who had never really heard of the MK Ultra group or the uh, the brainwashing that the CIA was doing, not only in the U.S., but also in Montreal, uh, mm -hmm. what was that about? The CIA was funding the Allen Memorial and they were uh, the Canadian government was also funding it for for experimental for brainwashing for the Soviets it came right from the Cold War um, I'm not I'm not familiar with a lot of the, the the background of it there's a lot of other of our members that really know a lot about that um, so they were trying to brainwash people for if they were captured as prisoners that they wouldn't speak so their brain would be wiped out and this is what they were trying to do to experiment on on my dad and, and uh, hundreds of others and unbeknownst to them they didn't sign up for that particular type of treatment no uh, i've got i've got my dad's files here and they've got they've sent me a whole pile a whole pile of blank consent forms with my father's signature on it but there's nothing saying what he's being treated for so they put these, made him sign all these papers and they didn't actually put in what they were doing to him.
All right. Okay. So he went in in 1953. And how long was he in the Allen Memorial? He was in and out of the Allen for years and years. I can't even pinpoint how many. Oh, so it wasn't just a one-time thing and they let him free. No, he was in there. Like I know he was in for at least 36 days at one point because he had been put into a um, insulin coma. That's another one of the treatments they did. They did put them in insulin comas and he was in a coma asleep for 36 days with a recording beside him um, going over and over and over. It's not in the medical files, but my mother had told me that it was, he was, it, the recording said, your mother hates you, your mother hates you, your mother hates you over and over and over for 36 days. Wow, you know, I'm trying to figure out what could the purpose of that sort of experiment be other than torturing somebody? Exactly, torture. Yeah. He, went through, he went through 54 high voltage shock treatments and followed by uh, grand mal seizures after. So you can see how, how intense these shock treatments are to cause a grand mal seizure. Right, yeah, and probably uh, impacted his memory, trying to things from his past. Yeah, 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 for sure. And like he, uh, he was never the same after that. I didn't, I didn't know him prior to because I was born in 1956. So that's in the file too, that my dad wanted to have another child and my mother's saying, no, no, no. <laughs> but here I am. <laughs> here I am. Are you but the youngest? I am, yeah, yeah. How many older siblings? I just have a sister that's four years older than me. Okay. Uh, so you both basically grew up only knowing your dad after he'd been experimented on. Yes, yes. Uh, so you're sort of robbed of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my father wasn't violent or anything, but he did things that were just no judgment whatsoever. No judgment whatsoever. What are some examples of that? Oh my God, where's my paper? <laughs> uh, he would, uh, oh my God, what was I going to tell you? All these crazy things he did. He would steal from, from Steinberg's grocery store to feed people on welfare. Feed uh, other people. Yeah, feed other people. We were starving, but it was okay. But the, he was feeding the other ones that, you know, cried to him. He, um, he put my, uh, the, see, my mother used to babysit our kids, my sisters and myself, my, when, when we went to work. So this is where I'm going up a bit farther where we had, he had grandkids. So my children were part of his craziness as well. So like he had this car and he put a, made a box on the top of it. And it was nothing for putting the kids in the top of the car and driving down the road and the kids loved it but I mean geez you know they could have been killed um he got my seven-year-old son drunk at the age of seven and he spent uh, I don't know exactly how many days in Montreal Children's Hospital my seven-year-old I mean calling into work and saying I can't come in today because my son is was intoxicated <laughs> my boss is saying when he's only seven <laughs> So I had to explain to her about my father. So uh, what was your father thinking when he when he got your son drunk? 
he just, I asked him, I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I just wanted somebody to drink with. Uh, so he was a big drinker? At one point, yeah, he was an AA member at the end. Yeah, he would drink and then he, he went to AA and big smoker. Most of the, I find that I've noticed a lot of the people that were victims were like really a lot of cigarette smoking. Like I remember going in to visit my father at the Allen and you get off the elevator and it was just a cloud of smoke. Everybody was smoking. I don't know if that caused. Maybe self-medicating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, so you visited him in the Allen. What was that experience like? Scary. I mean, here's a little kid with my mother holding onto her hand and people are coming up to her asking her, do you have a cigarette? Do you have a cigarette? Can I have a cigarette? It was like, when I think back, it was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest going in there. Kind of traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. My father did not like going back in there. Like he used to go, he used to be either high or low. Like, how do I explain it? He could either be in a, a very, uh, manic. Yeah, or or depressed to the point. I remember when I was a, a young kid coming home from school and um, my dad would be in the bedroom like he was when he was depressed and I'd open the door and all I could smell was sweat, bad breath and sweat. And I'd go up and I'd say, Daddy, would you want a cup of tea? And he would be just staring at me just blankly. So I'd try and go get a cup of tea and, and bring it into him. But he... So I did that. I was like a latchkey kid because I, I came home and, and, and here he was, you know, but he wouldn't, sometimes he wouldn't even talk. He wouldn't, he would just stare into space. And then other times when he did his crazy things, he was high as a kite. Wow. So sort of moving between being catatonic and being manic. Yes. Yes. So when he was really depressed to the point one time my mother called the little family doctor that used to come to the house with a little black bag, Dr. Grenier, his name was. And he was so in a coma, we thought he was dying. And she called my neighbor who had been a nurse and she came over and she called the ambulance and she got in the ambulance with my dad. And he was, he was going, he was flatlining and, and Auntie Mert, that would be, I used to call the neighbor she took her fist and just punched him right in the head and it woke him up. <laughs> it was like really bizarre, yeah. Punched him in the head, not in the chest. No, in the head, boom. Wow, I haven't heard of that therapy before. <laughs> no. Anyway, it worked, it brought him back. Wow. Mm -hmm. He'd do silly things like, uh, one time he was in Montreal. Montreal is quite a distance from where we lived. I mean, it was, I can't, Put it into kilometers or anything but it was quite a distance and his car broke down in montreal he walked all the way home over the st lawrence river on the bridge picked up tools walked all the way back and fixed his car and drove it back it was like days he was walking for days wow because he didn't you know he didn't he just uh -huh. his judgment was messed up judgment somehow. had no judgment at all. No. So how come he'd have to go back to the Allen Memorial? For the day clinics. He'd go in for day clinic therapy. And then after, he would actually even go up there and bring his guitar and play for the patients. 
his guitar. Okay, so it's hard to figure out how come he was going back and for what kind of therapy because he went in for asthma. Mm -hmm. So what's the what's the day th therapy about? Oh, just to regulate all the medication he was on. He was on lithium. He was on all kinds of meds. Uh, he, he, you know, and then at one point, I remember I was a teenager and all the pills were always up on the, the shelf in the kitchen. And he just took them and he flushed them all down the toilet, bad for the environment. But anyway, at that time, we didn't think about it. And he said, I'm not taking another pill. And then he just was high all the time. He never went depressed. My mother used to go down in the morning and take the air out of his tires until he lost his license. So that was another thing. He lost his license because his car broke down and he had a case of beer in the car and it wasn't working. So he opened up a beer and uh, the cops came and he got arrested. But he, he did represent himself in court with his dirty old shorts on and bare feet and no teeth. Well, that's quite a picture you've just drawn. Yeah, yeah. I told him another, oh, another one is the, the dentist. That was another thing. He was driving his bicycle past the dentist's office in Chambly and for some reason he stopped and opened up the, the mailbox and there was a, 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 a letter to the dentist and he opened it up, it was a check for $10,000. He decided to go to the CIBC bank. At that time, you had to take a picture when you had a check over $10,000. And he's standing there with not a tooth in his mouth because his teeth were rotting from all the medication he'd had. And he stood there with his dirty old t-shirt holding it with no teeth and he, they cashed the check. <laughs> so, you know, all of a sudden my father's rolling in dough and like, where is he getting this money from? And Finally, my mother found his bank book and, and had to go over to the dentist and explain the situation. And I mean, my mother went through hell trying to just cover up for him because people didn't understand this kind of thing. Like, even when my son was, when he got my son drunk, I could have lost my son to serve social services. The, the doctor that was in the emergency at the children's hospital was an older doctor. And I said to him, my father was a, a patient of Dr. Cameron's. And he looked at me and he told me, he says, I understand. Um, I'm not going to call children's services as long as you promise me you'll never let your father babysit again. I was really lucky that I had that doctor who knew about Dr. Cameron. Or I could have lost my son to, to, to children's services. Well, wow, that must have been incredibly frightening. Yeah, yeah. He had a little shot glass at the end of the table for my daughter, who was like two. <laughs> but she didn't like it, thank, thank God. She didn't like the wine. I would have had two intoxicated children. So when you mentioned doctor, that your father was a patient of Dr. Cameron and this other doctor recognized his name. Yeah. Yes. What was that about? I didn't really understand at the time, but I just knew that I was getting my kid back. And I didn't, you know, I didn't question it. I just thought, okay, you know, like, let's just go with this. So in, in retrospect, it sounds like that doctor knew what was going on under Dr. Yes. Cameron and the well, Allen Memorial. Now that I look back, yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, and so your mom, here she is, a mother to two kids. Her husband has been experimented on and, and damaged, and it doesn't sound like your dad was able to work anymore. That's right. So we went into poverty. What what work did he do before he was he experimented was, on? He was going up the ladder at Horowitz Sheet Metal. He was a sheet metal mechanic, very smart. He was going up the ladder really fast, and he ended up going in for the first treatment at the Allen. And then he was sent to Ottawa and he was supposed to be like a foreman of a bunch of people in, in, in Ottawa and he couldn't take it. They had to send him home. And he ended up back in the Allen in a big depression after that. That was when they, they couldn't keep him anymore. So they let him go. And then he had odd jobs here and odd jobs there, but nothing, you know, nothing he could hold. He, he wasn't the same person he was before. No, no. And my mother worked for Bell Canada in Dorval, which is quite far from where my, so my mother worked a four hour shift part time at Bell in Dorval. And she had to take a bus from Chambly, a Metro from Longale out to the West Island and another bus. So she worked about the same amount of hours as she was traveling every wow. day. Wow. How did your mom survive? I have no idea. That's when the envelope came in. Okay, that sounds <laughs> ominous. Yeah, 1984, I think it was 1984, I said to my mother, we should get dad's medical files. So my dad was still alive, and, and so he signed for to get them, and they came in the mail. And what prompted you to want to order those? Well, I was starting to think, like, what really went on? What really happened? And I think I spoke to somebody, and they said, get the medical files. So got the medical files. And when my mother looked at me, and she couldn't open the envelope and because it was too distraught for her just to see. So I thought she had destroyed them. I really did. And then she so you didn't look at them at that time. No, you just no. saw your mother's reaction and knew it was yeah. pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. So I thought I can't push her. Um, and then when she passed away, I opened up. We were cleaning out her house, and I opened up the cedar chest, and there it was—the envelope with my name on it. And how many and years that? Seven, seven, eight years. Okay. Yeah. And was your dad still alive at that point? No, he had passed away because that's the, another thing. There was the ex gratia package that the, um, the government was giving people compensation of um, $100,000 at that time. And my mother applied for it, but she didn't get anything because my father passed away. That was her, he, had, he had to be alive to get it, and she didn't get any of it. So... That's why I'm fighting the fight. She wants me to fight it. She left that envelope for me. Okay, so you found this envelope with your name on it. So she wanted you to open yeah. it up. And then yeah. when you opened it up, what did you find? Well, all the stuff in it was such a medical Chinese. Like it was, I couldn't really understand a lot of it. So I put it back up in the cupboard. And then... I hear things on the fifth estate. My girlfriend phones me and says, um, there's something about your father's thing on, on the fifth estate. So that was 
okay, so I pulled that down again. I mean, I was just torn between, I didn't know what to do, okay? So I was really upset when we didn't get the money for the ex gratia, that was way back. And I thought, oh yeah, it was Dr. St uh, Mr. Stein, a lawyer who was on the fifth estate. And my sister and I went to see him with the medical files in hand. And uh, he said, no, your father's dead, so you can't get anything. And I was just like, are you kidding me? So I went and I wanted to write a book. I said, I'm gonna get it out, out. I gotta tell people what happened. So I hired a writer and we were going through all this stuff and his medical files and as I'm learning everything at, at this time, more and more as I went along. And um, she went to see her lawyer because I think she got a bit afraid when she heard, you know, CIA and, and the government of Canada and the lawyer told her to make it, an, uh, you have to change the names in the, in the book. You can't use the real names because you might have a chance of getting sued. I stopped all everything. I stopped. I was. I said, "No, this really happened. This, these people, this happened. I've got the files. I've got the records to sh to prove it." But she wouldn't do it. So the bag went back up in the cupboard again. You know, it's like this. This. Anyways. So, so she uh, she was scared of. Uh legally scared and then that would mean financially fearful yes yeah and, but it sounds like you didn't have that same fear no i don't care i want to scream at the top of my the mountains to say what happened to my father it's time that the government and cia and all these 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 people that were involved in these experiments be accountable and justice has to be served so now we are in a, a lawsuit finally Okay, so tell me about that. It sounds like you've grouped together with other folks. Yeah, so we were with Mr. Stein's group, and and, I, and this is when I started to learn talking to other people in the same situation that I was in, which really opened my eyes. Um, so my I had my 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 files and talking to, to other people about things in the file in my files and they had the same thing and so it was a real learning experience uh, for me. And then the group sort of split up and then we went to the another uh, uh, consumer law group, who I'm um, as a class action that I'm involved in now and uh, we're fighting with the, well we're we're with them. Um, and we're waiting now. We're waiting. It's a waiting game for mm -hmm. the judge to be uh, appointed. The amount of uh, the amount of information and documentation and 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 documentaries that have been up uh, lately is is blowing me away. Like there's a, a lot of people are, are are learning about what happened. Like younger generations are coming around and saying what the heck you know uh, so it's getting out there and um, i don't think these people they're they're in a corner now that they, they can't hide this anymore this has to be be um we need accountability for what happened to our loved ones absolutely so when did you folks launch the class action lawsuit uh the 24th of january last year just over a year and has it been certified yet no 
This is where we're at now. We're waiting for a judge because it took a while for the CIA to come around. So we had to wait for them. Finally, they did. They had to. So, uh, yeah. So now we're waiting for a judge. And once a judge is appointed, then we, we hopefully get certification. And and it's it was happened 60 years ago. So the big thing is, the, you know, the uh, statute of limitation and that. But torture is the word. When they reuse torture, the statute of limitation is lifted. And this was definitely torture. Uh, so that's the sort of run around the statute of limitations is that these folks were tortured. Yeah, this is what I've, uh, yeah. Wow. Against their will. Yeah. So this happened in Montreal, but it also happened in the U.S. Are folks in the U.S. also launching class action lawsuits? I'm not aware. I don't know. I don't know. So you guys are independent of the people in the U.S. and their yeah. efforts. We had a rally on Parliament Hill on the 6th of October. Um, and we marched on Parliament Hill and we did speeches. And we then we marched down to the U.S. Embassy and our lawyer was there and gave a speech. Um, and we're, there's a couple of other rallies that are being planned for this coming April in Montreal at the Allen and at McGill University. Because McGill University is part of the, um, this, uh, the Royal Victoria Hospital. That's where all our files are. That's another thing. They're giving us a hard time giving, getting our files now. <clears throat> of course so, they are. Yeah, but I've got, I wrote a letter to the Commissioner de Access to Information de Quebec. And I've been waiting and waiting because I've got my files way back in the day with the envelope that my mother had left me. But when this started, I said, I'm not going to tell them I have files. And I had to get my father's death certificate, uh, search of his will. It cost us a bit of money to get all the stuff to get my father's files. So I finally got my dad's files, which are about half of what I got from the originals. There is something fishy here, right? So I've called them, I waited about a year, and now I have a hearing to go to in April with them uh, to find out why there's a discrepancy in, in the, the files. Wow, and so this consumer law group is the ones that are lawyers that are heading this for you guys. Yes, yes, and he, they, they, they told me they were, they'll, they'll try to represent me there in the hearing, so I'm just waiting to hear back from them. And so do you patients or the loved ones of the patients, uh, do you have to pay legal fees now or is that going to come under, how, is, how are they being paid? Uh, they'll be getting, what I, I'm not even sure, I think they get a percentage, the, the judge is the one after the case is certified. And if, if it's approved, then it's the, I believe it's the judge that gives them a percentage. Uh, okay, so they're working on the hope that they'll be successful, there'll be a large settlement, and they'll get a percentage of that settlement. That's what I understand, yeah. So for you patients and family members, it's not costing you anything up front to do this? No. Which makes Except it more accessible. Like getting our stuff for the, you know, for to get our files and whatnot. Mm, some yeah. of those expenses, mm -hmm. but not the legal expenses. No. No, I mean, when we had the rally, you know, on Parliament Hill, we had a, a funding thing on Facebook. So we had funded it ourselves for to get signs and megaphones and 
screaming and yelling and yeah. And did uh, the government respond or did the U.S. Embassy respond? Mm, no, I had a little problem with the uh, Parliament Hill. What do you they, mean? Well, I had to get permits and I had to do all this stuff and my signs had to be a certain size by a certain size. I went and did everything by the book. I, I was the organizer of this rally, by the way. So I did it all and uh, I have a big thing of coffee and I got signs and my car is on the papers and they said, make sure you bring this with you. We get there, my son's with me and I go in to pull into Parliament Hill and they say, you're not on, in the system convenient <laughs> so what did you guys do oh we just pulled around to the front in front of the parliament hill and just parked the car and took everything out off the front street and we went up there and, and the um the guards didn't even they were supposed to tell us where our rally was and nobody they didn't know and then we were supposed to have our um press release uh sent out through a, a one of the parliament people up there was supposed to send it out to like 300 journalists and it's funny we had we had american journalists there but we we had cbc we had a few but nothing like we should have had so i called the following monday and uh he said he never received my email i'm thinking really i don't believe this for a minute but anyway so um he says i can send it to, can you send it to me now i said the rally's over he said i said yeah but i will you stay on the phone and i'll send it to the same email i sent it to before the rally and sure enough he got it so they say it was a computer error i just put that out to you know whatever mm -hmm. yeah if it was a one-off but when there's a whole series of these things where your information's not getting through it's mm -hmm. it makes you think yeah makes you think but anyway that's water over the dam we go forward now and uh keep fighting the fight so it sort of sounds like you you guys want two things once one you want the truth to come out and some accountability for the people who perpetrated this and all these folks and also financial compensation yes yeah i want to i want a, an apology and an apology and, and i and and we were talking at one point having a plaque put up on Mount Royal with our loved ones' names on it, that is very close to my heart. I hope that happens, because they deserve to be recognized. Do you know how many people were in the Allen under the experiments? Well, I'm looking at our group now, and we've got about close to 400 members. Wow. I don't know if they all have medical files. I don't know, you know but yeah it's not just a few little people it's, there's a lot coming out wow so that was a really big project over a number of years when did it stop well our our class action is going from 1953 to 1964 i believe that period and, that's and the period with the with the funding from in, coming from you know the states and whatnot mm -hmm. uh, okay so it's at least 11 years that this was going on mm -hmm. and did was your father involved uh but there's other, other not with the allen for the whole time because after the allen 
he ended up going into the, the, the Douglas Hospital, which was another mental hospital in, in Verdun, outside of Montreal. He was also under another psychiatrist at the Montreal General Hospital. Like, I don't understand that. I think they just sort of pushed them and they didn't need them anymore. They put them off somewhere else. Um, but I remember taking my dad to the Montreal General at one point and they had a revolving door. Oh my God. He would not get out of that door. It was, he would go, I said, dad, get out. And, you know, he'd go around again. And he'd go, I mean, he didn't want to go because he thought he was going to get shock treatments. That's what he told us. Oh. So he would, it was like around and around. And I mean, people are trying to get in and get out. And my father's just going around and around, you know, another embarrassing moment, but you know. Right, and him trying would, to avoid ECT. Yeah. Yeah, we made we made through a lot of that. Yeah, but the so, memory I didn't tell the, the memory thing I was spoke to you earlier about, like they were trying to wipe out their memories, right? So they wouldn't remember anything. My, yeah, uh, my uh, my father's brother was bringing my dad home from another time at the at the Allen, and my sister was so excited because Daddy was coming home, and Dad, she was so excited about seeing Daddy. They drove the car up and my sister went running to the car and he, he opened up the door and he just looked at my sister and he didn't know who she was. And my sister could not understand what happened to her daddy. And she was about five or six years old at the time. So at least she remembered that. I was too young, so I didn't remember any of that stuff. But that was, you could see where they were trying to wipe out the memory. And, and I believe my mother then sort of trained my dad to bring back memory or this is your kids and you know this is Lana this is Linda you know like I don't know I don't know how how it happened but yeah it was pretty pretty scary for my sister yeah no doubt yeah to be five years old and to see that your father doesn't recognize you acknowledge you must have she been. thought he was gonna pick her up throw her up in the air like he always used to do and blank face wow and how do you explain that to a five-year-old, you know? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the harm your family had to endure, it wasn't just your father you know, being experimented on and he goes back to work. It impacted him for the rest of his life. It impacted your family. Yeah, yeah. Embarrassment, uh, poverty, secondhand clothes, lots of potatoes. Um, you know, we, it was, I don't know how my mother did it. I take my hat off to my mother now that I don't know how she did it. And for, don't forget, Medicare wasn't in. So every time my dad went in for a treatment, shock treatment or whatever, my mother had to pay for it. Yeah, you told me that before. And that's just like rubbing salt in a wound. They're yeah. going in there. Pay for your husband to be tortured. Like, you know? And that's why she needed money. I don't know how she did it. I really have no idea how she managed to put food on the table when I look back. Yeah. And not leave him or kick him out. She told me one time, I said to her, I said, Ma, why don't you just divorce him? And she looked at me and she said, it's not his fault. I didn't understand it then, but I know, I know now. It's not his fault. Wow. Pretty sad. 
Yeah, but yeah. it also really speaks to the ethics of your mom. Mm -hmm. She wasn't going to abandon him because it wasn't his fault. That's right. Yeah, she's she going to endure that all that suffering. Mm-hmm. And she, yeah, so she lived uh, about 17 years uh, later after my dad passed away. He passed away at 67, and my mom passed away when she was 81. And she just, at that point, she, she just took in the grandkids. She enjoyed those last years of her own life without my father's stress <laughs> level behind her. Yeah. And uh, yeah, she was the best nanny ever. <laughs> well, it sort of sounds like um, she would be obviously sad that he died, but also relieved. Hugely relieved. I, I never saw her cry. My sister never saw her cry either when he died, which was kind of weird, you know, but I can see the relief. Like she put through this for years. Yeah. How did you feel when your dad died? Sad. I mean, I was working in Montreal and I got the call and I must have drove too fast to the hospital, but I didn't make it. So, mm. yeah. And so you grew up, you have your own kids, it sounds like. Yeah. What's happened in your life? My life, I worked for the Royal Bank of Canada for 21 years in Montreal, and I just thought, this isn't really for me. I looked out the window and I saw these people coming out of the Herbert Reddy Hospital, and I thought, I'm going to take care of seniors. <laughs> so I quit my job, skipped down the road. My husband almost killed me. I had one more year for a pension, but I said, I don't care. And uh, I started my own little business. Uh, taking care of seniors privately and uh, it's called Lana's Love and Trust and um, I've been doing this for 23 years now in three different locations oh. and, I, and I have I hire people that work for me and I've got four girls that work for me now and we go around and we give them the love and care that they need and it's funny that I'm doing this because I deal with a lot of people with Alzheimer's and because of dealing with my dad all those years, I think it's made me, I can understand them more. I, I don't know. It's just my, you know, and I'm pretty, I'm really pretty good with not, not put it, patting myself on the back, but yeah, I'm pretty good with the, with the seniors, especially the Alzheimer's ones. Well, yeah. All those skills and strategies that you needed to sort of support your dad or deal with your dad are there. Yeah. They're coming back and the music I've got, my dad played guitar and he played the piano cross-handed. I've never seen anybody do that, but my father used to play the piano cross-handed. The guitar, he had the mouth organ around with the, the thing, you know, so he'd be playing the guitar, playing the mouth, mouth organ. And I used to go to bed at night and, and he'd be playing downstairs with his buddy. Uh, and I'd have the pillow over my head. And I'm hating country music like you have no idea. I got to get up for school in the morning, but I couldn't help it. And I hated it. And now I've got Ivor's Golden Songbook. And I sing it to all the old people that I have. And uh, it's like I, I hated it then, but I learned the words. <laughs> and then he's like, where do you know these words? You're too young for to know all these words. I said, my dad. Yeah. And his name was Ivor. Ivor, yeah. 
he's reverberating now in your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a very positive way. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I have uh, a grandson whose name is Rowan Iver. <laughs> and uh, he's five years old, so I'm, you know, I'm enjoying him. Wow, that's it's such an incredible story, you know, partially the whole political thing that this has gone on, but then mm -hmm. on that personal level that your family had to endure this, it's just hard for me to fathom how you managed to get through that. Yeah, and my sister went to McGill University and became a teacher. She got it, my mother, I don't know where she found it, but she found something if you were from Scottish descent, she ended up getting some kind of a bursary, like cause she couldn't afford it. But my, you know, she managed to get my sister through, through teaching university, but on on grants and stuff. I just mm -hmm. went, I just went to business college. <laughs> so, what like, do you hope happens in the future? I hope this never happens to anybody else again, but I doubt if that's going to happen. What I see, you know. There's so many secret, secret stuff going behind people's back that, I mean, but at least if we can bring it to the, to people's knowledge, so people are aware, um, like for example, when my son was born at the Royal Victoria Hospital, they wanted to do an experiment. They wanted to use him as an experiment for SIDS, S-I-D. Yep, the sudden infant death yeah. syndrome. And you know what I said, eh? <laughs> not <laughs> so i want people i mean they have to do experiments and that but i wasn't letting my son do any no 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 not what after i went through with my dad mm -hmm. so is it hard for you to trust doctors now terribly uh-huh yeah very and how, much. how's your health been I don't go to the, I, I, I do, I Google what I have wrong with me and I go to the doctor and I say, I need this, this, this. I diagnose myself. I don't, I, I, I have to know what's, what I'm getting when the doctor, you know, I got a good doctor. <laughs> he pretty much does what I tell him. <laughs> yeah, he must understand where you're coming from. I don't think he understands. He just knows I'm in the medical field with seniors, and I, I, you know, I've, I'm, I self-educated myself with stuff with with them, and and I mean, they're as far as I'm concerned, seniors in nursing homes are just totally over-medicated anyway. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's another story, though. <laughs> yeah, it sort of parallels your father's story without the experimental part, but just the the drugs in sort of an experimental way, because they're giving seniors antipsychotic drugs and Hugely. not all of them are psychotic. No, no. I had one chap, he was very compulsive and compulsive and compulsive and they get him, gave him some uh, antipsychotic uh, trazodone or whatever and that didn't really work. And finally the doctor put him on uh, medical marijuana. Oh my gosh, just leveled out family was so happy so i don't know i don't know where that that's all coming in new now but but what i see in these nursing homes it, it, drugs 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 zonk them zonk them zonk them yeah yeah, yeah really make sad. them compliant 
Yeah, so I deal with, uh, you know, I'm fighting with them all the time too when I go to wherever, I deal with a lot of nursing homes. So it's like, yeah, they don't like me very much, but I'm there for the, for the, for the people and I'm there for the families. I'm hired by families, not for them. So I do what I can. So I've always been fighting. I've always been a fighter for the, for, so this is, this is my biggest fight though for my dad. Yeah. Yeah, that has a lot of meaning for you. Yeah, to the tattoo I got. I don't know. I got my my dad. Okay, where did I see on my heart? My father's actual signature right there. Oh. And my mother's cardinal. Yeah, I had that just. What am I doing getting tattoo at my age? But anyway, it meant a lot to me that I got my dad, and my mom on my heart. Wow. Yeah, that is so meaningful. That's very cool. Honoring them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Alana, this has just been a frightening <laughs> experience to hear what your, your family went through and that the government was doing this to citizens. Yeah. It's just hard to fathom that we could be so betrayed by our government and by doctors and the healthcare system. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Cameron's face is getting out there so much now. He's almost recognized instantly now on the on the on Facebook and on you know social media, which is pretty cool. So, other folks who uh, may be in the Montreal area, or their family was, and maybe their somebody in their family was also involved in the experiments. If they wanted to find out more information or connect with the group that you're connected with, how do they find you? They can go to Consumer Law Group. They can go to SAGA, S-A-A-G-A. That's uh, the group's name on online. And they can hook up with the lead plaintiff there. Uh, and then she'll help them find out what they can do. But they can also go through the law Consumer Law Group too. Okay. And they're out of Montreal? Yes. Yes, they're in Montreal. Well, thank you for sharing your story and your dad's story and your really your whole entire family story. Um, it's I'm like getting a... better. I didn't cry this time. <laughs> Usually <laughs> I break down, but it's like you're not my first interview, so I'm getting stronger, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, telling the story. That's only part of it. I should give you, you know, there's so much more. But... Yeah, you have a book there. I got it. Yeah, I got a book. <laughs> I really do. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it is undeniable actions like this by government and medical institutions that makes one wonder what other experiments we may be unwittingly subjected to. We like to think our medical leaders have strong ethics, but history and research shows that ethics are contextual as evidenced by Lana's experience. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. If you need the support of an experienced counselor around medical error or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.
Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.